Before we uh, jump into the passage this morning, I just want to talk briefly about the last four weeks. As you know, um, the last four weeks, the, the, the platform here has, uh, has, has held on it uh, uh, four laymen, um, four guys who are engineers or in, in marketing. Uh, they are not uh, professional paid ministers. Um, these four individuals, uh, Jake and David and Ken and, and Zach, they were men who, who took the, the basics of Bible preaching course. It's something that's open to anybody and everybody. It'll be offered again this fall. But um, these, uh, these guys, they took on what's known as a sermon on the plane from Luke chapter 6. We purposely skipped over that, um, giving uh, these guys uh, uh, that particular passage to work through, and so they spent several months um, studying that passage and preparing those, those messages. And, uh, and I told you uh, a few weeks ago that there was, there was two reasons for doing that, but I only gave you one of those reasons. Um, that one, the first reason for, for why we did that is that we are an equipping church, we are a church that believes that leaders have been called uh, to, to help the church be equipped for works of ministry instead of doing the works of ministry themselves. We're an equipping church. And so um, part of, of what it means to follow Jesus Christ is to be able to articulate the gospel, to be able to tell people who he is and what he's done and, and who we are because of that and how we get to live. To be able to articulate the gospel is, is something that's, that's foundational for all of us. And so that, that course is basically, that's what it's about. It's open to anybody within the body who desires to be able to proclaim the gospel. And whether the context is over your, your neighbor's fence or whether it's on the bleachers at a baseball game or whether it's the water cooler at work or in some cases, whether it's from this platform, but for all of us to be able to, 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 to tell the world around us who this Jesus is and what he's done for us. And so we're an equipping church. The second reason, which I didn't go into, which I've been saving for this morning, is we desire for you not to follow after personalities. We desire to be a people who follows after Jesus. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, he, he talks to the, the Corinthians church about the fact that they, they're either following him or they're following a guy named Peter or they're following a guy named Apollos. And, and Paul is confronting them and he's basically saying, look, I didn't die for you. Christ died for you. We exist to point you to him. And the truth is, is I exist to point you to him. Anybody who takes this platform exists to point you to him. And so if over the course of the last four weeks, if you said to yourself, you know, I'm not going to go to the gathering this morning because Justin's not preaching, I would really ask you to press into that and look at your heart, examine your heart. I don't want you to follow me. I want you to follow Jesus. If, on the other hand, you said to yourself, I get to go to the gathering this morning and I get to hear from somebody else besides Justin and I get to hear the gospel from another place, that's good. That's maturity. And that's what we want. Uh, just like we do the away game and just like we're going to do uh, that, that church in the, in the park with the, the, the community of Xenia, we, we're, we're not a, a church that is, that is following a, a person other than Jesus or, or we're about a place or we're about programs, but we're about the gospel, right? So enough said about that. I want to get into our passage. We're going to be in uh, Luke chapter 10 this morning, beginning in verse 25. And, uh, and while you're turning there, I want to sort of lay out the, the context of this passage a little bit because the context is, is different than the context which we find ourselves living in. Uh, in, in this passage, we're going to see Jesus um, interact with a man um, who, who is coming to, um, to, to critique him. He's coming to judge him. He's coming to, uh, to test him. But what we're going to see about this, this man and Jesus is that they have a common foundation from which they're able to start from. 
They, they're individuals who, they, they both have a, a common foundation, a standard by which they're both operating from. Um, both of them are, are standing in the same spot. Both of them come under the authority of the same thing, and that is God's law. Both of them are submitting to God's law, standing on that as their common foundation, and that's the place where they're able to start from and dialogue from, though they'll interpret it differently. Okay? Now, um, that is not the same as our culture today. Right? Uh, we live in a culture that, that says that you should throw foundations away. That the standards that, uh, that we've, we've adhered to for so long, they're actually holding us back. Throw away the standard. In fact, the only new standard is there are no standards. The only real rule to follow is that there are no rules. There's, there's only one law, and that law is there are no laws. It's you do you, you get to be whatever you want to be, you get to do whatever you want to do, and, and we see this as freedom. At least we're told that it's freedom. The problem is, is this is a type of freedom that actually leads us to isolation. See, foundational truth is necessary for relationship. Foundational truth is, is necessary for relationship. Um, think about marriage. Uh, Melissa and I, if her and I, we don't agree about what marriage is. How can that last, right? If we don't agree about what monogamy is, if we don't agree about what faithfulness is, right? If we don't agree about my role as a husband and, and her role as a wife, then, then this is a relationship, it, it can't stand. We have to have a common foundation upon which to stand. Society, likewise, it needs a common foundation. Within a society, if we cannot agree on, on the value of, of human life, if we cannot agree on that, then, then we'll always see a society in which the, the, the powerful dominate the weak. Right? If, if we can't agree on what order looks like in society, then we'll see anarchy and chaos. If we cannot agree what is a man and what is a woman, we won't have equality in workplaces. We won't have equal opportunity. We won't have fairness and competition. Foundational truth is necessary for our relationships with one another and for our relationships with God. You think um, back a few months ago, Leah Thomas um, uh, uh, was a swimmer for uh, uh, the University of Pennsylvania who won the 500 meter freestyle women's event. However, two years ago, Thomas was on the men's team. After his sophomore year, he underwent hormone replacement therapy. Um, asked the NCAA to compete as a woman. They allowed it, and Thomas dominated. Now, as a man, he didn't win any races. As a woman, dominates. This caused the uh, International Olympic Committee to ask the question, should athletes like Thomas be able to compete on an international level? And so they, they formed a, a committee, and uh, they, um, they, they formed three different panels, a panel of um, athletes, a panel of uh, medical doctors, and uh, a panel of uh, um, human rights activists. And they came together, and they wrestled with the question, should someone who is, who is like uh, Leah Thomas be able to perform at an international level in women's swimming? And the answer came back, no. Thomas cannot compete at an international level in the men's event, nor in the women's event. Now, they have opened up the possibility of creating a third category, 
an other category. Now, regardless of how you feel about that, I want you to consider Leah Thomas for a sec. Can you imagine how isolated and lonely he is now? Here's an individual who believed a lie about what would set him free and underwent massive changes in order to feel that and experience that, to briefly come out on top only to be told, you're not a man, you're not a woman, you're an other. There's no category for you. Can you imagine how isolating that is? You see, without a foundation of truth, we can't relate to one another. Without a foundational truth, relationships can't exist. And so what we see in the passage we're about to look at is that Jesus and this man who comes to test him both have the same foundation. And what we're going to see is this foundation. It's God's law, and, and it's this law that, uh, that really governs it. It, it. It's this law that allows human beings to relate to one another, to relate to God. But what we're going to see is that this law is actually a standard we can't meet. It's actually a standard that we, we, we can't overcome. Like, we can't accomplish this. Like, we can't do it. We can't meet the requirements of this law. And as high as this law is, the beautiful thing is that God's mercy and grace is just as high, if not higher. We get to see that this morning. And, and in the middle, if we would come to Christ, we would find ourselves resting on a foundation, a solid place, a solid rock of peace and rest that won't shift underneath our feet but will be a place for us to be, having not been able to perform the standard, yet knowing the standard has been accomplished for us by Jesus Christ. So let's dive into the text. We're going to be Luke 6, or I'm sorry, Luke 10, beginning in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. I'm going to pause and pray, and then we're going to get uh, a little bit deeper into this. Heavenly Father. I pray this morning that you would just remind us of, of your truth. That you would remind us of the firmness of your law. Um, the height of your grace. I pray that you would remind us of the, the, the love of your son for, for us. And I pray that uh, we would be a people who um, would show the world 
what a foundation built on you looks like. Um, I pray for our time together, Father. I pray the words that people hear this morning are yours and not mine. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, in our time together, we're going to walk through this passage uh, bit by bit, and hopefully by the time uh, we are, are done with it, um, you will be able to, to see that God's law is not only necessary uh, for us, but through the gospel, uh, this law actually sets us truly free. And then so at the end of our time together, we're going to partake of communion. Let's get into verse 25. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Jesus is facing a lawyer. Um, so just like in our society, there is uh, lawyers for all sorts of different types of law, right? So we have uh, constitutional law, and we have tax laws, and uh, we have uh, you know, real estate laws, and, and all things like that. For every type of law, there's an expert who's a, a lawyer for that particular type of law. So the guy that Jesus is confronted with here is a lawyer, like you would call him like a Torah lawyer maybe right? The law that he is an expert on is the first five books of the Old Testament, the law, the Mosaic law, the law that is supposed to be foundational for, for all uh, Jewish people in their relationship to one another and their relationship to God. He is the, the kind of a lawyer. He is, he is a religious person, uh, but he is, he's more than that. He is an expert in the law so that he can condemn or exonerate anyone caught breaking the law. All right, and so this is those who's coming to Jesus, and he's coming to put Jesus to the test. Right? Now, whether that is to prove Jesus or to disprove him, Luke's not exactly clear. Um, similar passages, in, in, passages in, in Matthew and Mark sort of shade him as someone who's definitely coming to uh, rebuke Jesus, who's coming to debunk Jesus, who's coming to prove him to be a liar and a false prophet. But Luke, he says that he's coming to test him, but beyond that, we don't really know this man's heart. And it seems as if Luke, like he, he often does in, in his, his gospel, is he leaves things open-ended. The story doesn't have a great conclusion to it. It's almost like he asks the reader to insert themselves into it and sort of finish the story out. We'll get there. So he's a lawyer, and he's come to test Jesus, and he's come to test him with this, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, whether the question is, is meant to prove or disprove Jesus is secondary. This is a really important question. What must I do to have eternal life? What is the key to heaven's door? What standard do I need to meet? What hoop do I need to jump through? What do I need to, to do to make God let me in to his king? What, do I, what must I do to have eternal life? This is an important question. Have you answered that question? Jesus answers. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? That's good, right? You're a, you're a law professor or a law professional, right? Tell me what the law says. He puts the question squarely back on the lawyer. You're, you're an expert in this. What does the law say? How do you interpret what the law says? He said to him, I'm sorry, verse, uh, I'm moving too fast. Um, what is interesting about the question is, is actually a couple of weeks ago, Ken uh, talked, uh, mentioned this, this phrase that Jesus says in, in the Sermon on the Plain, where Jesus, he says, uh, with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. It's, it's, a, it's a passage about judging other people, right? 
the, the, the measurement that you would use to judge somebody else, that's the same measurement you're going to, to, to face as well. Um, Matthew uh, adds this, with the judgment you pronounced, you will be judged. Right? I want you to think about this. Um, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is God. This is God's law that they're standing on. And essentially the question is, is if this is God's measurement, then is God going to be measured by it? If this is God's judgment, will God be judged by it? And here is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, in the flesh, coming not to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. Not only did he write it, he's actually coming to show us how to live it. Does Jesus meet the expectations of the law? Does Jesus meet the standard? He does. He's the only one who does, but we'll get into that. And so, verse 27... And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Uh, The lawyer quotes the law. Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19, he quotes the law. Love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's the standard. That's the standard for which if you follow that standard, if you meet that standard, if you love God perfectly with everything you have every moment of your life, and if you love your neighbor as you love yourself, then you meet the standard and you, 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 you reach the demands of God and you get to have eternal life. That's what Jesus actually says. He said unto him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. You've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. Now, um, the question is, is it possible to do this? Is it possible? If you know much about uh, Paul, he, he says many, many times in his writings that it's not possible to be saved by our works. It's not. In fact, uh, Galatians uh, 2.16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So is Jesus saying it's possible? No. There's there's a big if there. If you do this, you will live. If. But you see, it's a standard that's not possible. It's not reachable. It's actually not attainable. Uh, But he'll try. The very next words are, are telling, verse 29, but he desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, you got to laugh at this. So there's two commands, right? Love God and love your neighbor. And he jumps right to the second command. He does not spend any time dealing with loving God with everything you've got. He doesn't spend any time with that. Sometimes um, if we don't like the answer to a question that we just won't pose the question if we know what to expect. He doesn't even deal with that. He, he's going to play it off like he actually has loved the Lord God with all of his heart, with all of his mind, with all of his soul, with all of his strength, perfectly his whole life. You think so? He just skips right to the second one. Who's my neighbor? And, and this is what he's doing. He's basically saying, if all, all, here's this pool of all of humanity. How do we reduce this pool of humanity to a manageable group that I can love? Right? How do you, how do you whittle this large number of people down 
in size to have an, an actually a, a group, a sizable group of people that you can actually love, all right? Who's my neighbor? Now, uh, the word neighbor in Greek has a, a root word. It's pelos. And, and what it means literally is near. It means near. So it, your neighbor is the one who, are, who is near you. Now, what he's going to do is he's going to take this figuratively. Who is near me figuratively speaking? So if I'm supposed to love people as I love myself, who are the people that are like myself? So the people that are near me are the people who look like me, who think like me, who act like me, who talk like me. Those are the people that are near me, figuratively speaking. That's my neighbor. And I can love those people. Well, he asks this question to Jesus, and he expects that uh, that that would be the type of answer that Jesus would give him, but that is not the type of answer that Jesus gives him. Jesus tells him a story, a parable, which is designed to sort of reach inside of him and bring out his heart and show him the reality of what his heart really is because he's trying to justify himself. And so here's the story. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man? who fell among the robbers. Uh, the guy who fell among the robbers, he's sort of incidental. Jesus really wants us to focus on these three characters. The, the priest, uh, likely a guy coming back from Jerusalem after having served in the temple. He's supposed to be a good guy. He's supposed to be a godly man. He's supposed to, to, to show uh, the Israelite people what it means to serve God and to love like God. He's actually an intermediary for the people before God. Here's a priest, and he comes across this man, and notice he does not get near him. Notice what it says. It goes on the other side. It goes around. Likewise, a Levite. From the priestly caste, a, another guy who's supposed to be a godly man, who's supposed to be good and moral and decent and all of that, and yet he too does not come near this man. He goes around on the other side. And yet who it is, who is it that's the hero? It's a Samaritan. And see, from the Jewish perspective, a Samaritan was, for, forgive the expression, from a Jewish perspective, they were half-breeds. They were uh, descendants of Jews and Syrians. And likewise, their religion was part Judaism, but part paganism, as they allowed all of these other things to infiltrate what it is that they believed. To a Jewish person, a Samaritan was impure, was lowly. For, for this lawyer, this Torah lawyer, the exact opposite person of who he would be would be a Samaritan man. The Samaritan man would be the exact opposite of him. So he would not be near him, so to speak, figuratively. He wouldn't be near him in the way that he thought, in the way that he acted, in the way that he spoke. 
The exact opposite. It's interesting that Jesus, he frames this story, not like the Samaritan is the guy who gets beat up and left for dead, and it's the, the, the priest who comes along and saves the day. Like Jesus picks the hero of the story to be the exact opposite of what the lawyer was. He puts that question to the lawyer. Who's the neighbor here? Who's the neighbor here? You see, Jesus defines neighbor not as someone who is near you figuratively, but as someone who is near you literally. Anyone who you come across, anybody your paths cross, anybody your life and their life intersects for a moment, your neighbor is anybody you literally get near. That's what your neighbor is. Now, Stepping back from, from taking the, uh, another contextual look at, at what's going on here. Uh, Jewish leaders had uh, done a lot of work to take the Old Testament law and add to it. Uh, for instance, when it came to obeying the Sabbath, one of the Ten Commandments is, is obey the Sabbath, keep the Sabbath holy, you're not to work on the Sabbath. Um, Jewish, Jewish leaders, by the time of Jesus' day, had actually added 39 categories not 39 rules, but 39 categories of rules for what you're not supposed to do on the Sabbath. A long, long list of you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do that, right? That this is, this is extreme legalism, right? This is far right-wing conservatism. Now, we tend to think of Jesus as somebody who's in the middle. He's not right, he's not left, he's center. But the reality is, is Jesus is actually far more right than the most right-wing legalist you can imagine. Jesus expands the law too, but he expands the law not in what you can and can't do. He expands to govern your heart. He expands the law to govern our desires. In Matthew 5, he says, you know, you've heard it said you shouldn't commit murder. I say you shouldn't even be angry with a brother or you're guilty. You said, you've heard it said, you, you shouldn't commit adultery. I say you've looked at a woman with lust in your heart. You've already committed adultery. You're guilty. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye. I say to you, if you're slapped on one cheek, turn the other likewise. You've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemy. Because he's your neighbor. You see, Jesus takes the law and he expounds on it too. But it governs not only what we do, it actually governs the motives of our heart. He's far more conservative than any religious legalistic-minded person. He takes the standard of the law and he raises it so high, it is so completely impossible for any of us to meet that standard. There is not a person in this room hasn't committed adultery or committed murder or had vengeance taken out on somebody, at least in our hearts. None of us are innocent. None of us have loved our neighbor. The standard's too high. But you see, as, as much as he is uh, the, the far end of the right, he's also the far end of the left. Because in his grace and in his mercy, he is more generous in liberality than any left-wing liberal. This law that we stand on, it's his. He wrote it. But he takes on flesh and comes and obeys it perfectly. 
every moment of every single day surrendered to God the Father in perfect obedience and not just because he had to, but because he wanted to. Every single moment of every day with every person he encountered, he loved them, including his opponents, including this lawyer, including the people who put him to death. As from the cross, he would say, Father, forgive them. He loved perfectly his father and every person he came into contact with. He fulfilled the law. He met the standard so that when he went to the cross, he made the great exchange. He imparts righteousness to us. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might know the righteousness of God. He imparts that to us. And within that exchange, God looks at us and he sees that we are justified. We've met the standard because he did. God pours out his wrath upon him and he willingly absorbs it. God sees the great love of his son and raises him from the dead. And he seated him in the heavenly. And Paul says that if you and I are in Christ, we are seated with him. Do you see the triumph of that? You see that the standard, that this foundation that we stand upon, we can't reach it. We, we can't attain to it. But the grace and mercy of God is just as high and demonstrated in, in Jesus Christ through his gospel. We get to stand secure in this place. And because of that, we can relate to one another. The gospel provides a foundation for us to relate to God and to relate to one another. It provides a place of peace. And you know what? We give up freedom. We do. We do give up freedom when we are called to lay our lives down in order to follow him. We are to pick up our crosses and, and follow him. But we give up that freedom and we gain relationship. We gain relationship with the God of the universe. Well, the passage finishes. Jesus poses the question to the man. The man says, uh, in response to who is the one who showed him mercy, the man says it's, it's, it's the, the Samaritan. And Jesus' last words to him are, you go and do likewise. That's where it ends. You go and do likewise. He can't. He can't. And, and it seems like Luke is, is saying to us, if you were in this situation, would you go and try to justify yourself? Would you go and try to do likewise? Or would you ask another question? One of the commentators uh, that I read said that, that, that he should have asked another question. He should have asked, how can someone find eternal life if they fail to love God and his neighbor perfectly? In that case, Jesus would have responded with the good news that he had not come for the righteous or the spiritually healthy, but for sinners who knew their need of a physician of their souls. See, here's a man who was, who was face to face with the truth of the gospel, of a standard that he couldn't meet, and the reality that there was someone who could, and, and instead of turning to Jesus, he walks away. He walks away continuing to try and justify himself. 
Christians in Christ, we have such a beautiful, firm foundation. You know, the, the story of the Good Samaritan, oftentimes we, we put ourselves in, in the biblical stories that we read. You know, you're not supposed to find yourself in this story as the Good Samaritan. Uh, you're not even supposed to see yourself in the story as the Levite or the priest. See, you and I, we're actually the half-dead man laying beside the road. Because of sin, it has robbed us of our life. And we are helpless. It's Jesus who's the good Samaritan. Jesus is the one who's so different than us. He doesn't look like us, think like us, talk like us. But yet he comes near us. He, in great compassion, comes to us and he binds up our wounds. And by his wounds, we are healed. This is the beautiful story of the gospel. This is the foundation we get to stand on. There's a world out there that says, you can be free. You, you can throw away all foundations and you can throw away all standards and you can throw away all rules and you can decide what's true for you. And in doing that, you will find freedom. And I want you to know that, that you could, you could go out and have sex with whoever you want to have sex with, but you'll forsake intimacy in a real relationship with someone. You could go out and pursue material possessions until your hands and houses and garages are full of everything that you want. You still won't know contentment. You could pursue the praise and the affirmation and the pats on the back and the prizes and the medals from human beings. But at the end of it, you'll still won't know true acceptance. You ultimately will pursue this idea of freedom but in the end, you'll find yourself isolated and alone. Christians, when we interact with the world, it's the truth that the world needs to hear. They need to know about the foundation. They need to know about God's law. They need to know it because it's the only thing that can save. And oftentimes, I think we as Christians, we water down the truth or we lighten it or ease it, and we want to be loving and kind to the world around us, but truthiness doesn't save. But the gospel does. I'm going to pray, and we're going to transition into a time of communion. Heavenly Father, how good is your word? How strong. What a firm foundation it is. And we get to rest in it. Not because we've accomplished it, but because you've accomplished it for us. We don't have to self-justify because you've justified us in your son. I pray that we would live out of that truth. I pray that we would be a people that would show the world around us just how firm a foundation is and just how much freedom it actually does bring as we're free to love you and we're free to love one another. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know,
just because the standard has been achieved for us doesn't mean that we don't try to love God or we don't try to love our neighbor. But what has changed for us is the motivation. You don't have to love God or love your neighbor in order to attain to heaven. You already have it. Instead, you get to love God and love your neighbor out of a response of the one who first loved you. I want to close our time together with communion uh, by meditating on the, the passage that comes next, that closes out uh, Luke chapter 10. Verse 38, it says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Martha, like the, the lawyer in the previous section, is working very hard to justify herself. Meanwhile, her sister, who has chosen the better part, is resting at the feet of Jesus. Jesus has done all the work for us. Spiritually speaking, if you are in Christ, you're seated in the heavenlies already. The work has been done for us, but how many of us spend more time trying to serve God than actually be with God? How many of us spend so much effort in trying to earn a love that we've actually already received? We just don't take enough time to sit in. In our time of communion this morning, and by the way, uh, the elements are on the inside aisles on a tray. Um, and if you would, uh, pass them uh, down the aisle. Um, uh, by the way, if, if you can allow that, that tray to pass by you, if you choose not to partake of communion, nobody will judge you for that. Okay? When, when it gets to the end of the road, just put it on the shelf in front of you. But in our time of, of communion this morning, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to sit with Jesus. These two elements, the bread and the cup, the bread is, is a symbol of his body given for us. That righteous body, that righteous life, from, uh, from, from birth until death, continually, always loving God, loving his neighbor. That body given to you, and it's given to me, and, and it takes our place. And it, it, it declares us righteous. And that cup, it's a symbol of, of his blood being poured out, which provides a new relationship, a new covenant between us and God the Father. This gospel gives us a relationship with our creator. And I want you to know that right now, what he wants from you is not for you to get busy serving him in some way. What he wants from you is to sit and be with him. In a moment, the band will come and play. But just be with him.